Gratitude and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness explores reconciling grief, the gratitude that allows us to persevere, and the greatness we achieve when we connect with purpose. I'm your host, Sarah Shaul. As a Korean-born adoptee, Beth grew up in a predominantly white Christian community. Her middle American childhood was one where she never really fit in. I speak with Beth about the complexities of incomplete grief as an adoptee and a woman of color. Doing all this work on adoption, I've discovered this concept called incomplete grief, which you probably know about. When I was adopted, I was six months old. Yeah. I know a very little bit about my story. I was with my biological mom for about a month. I was breastfed, and it seems that I was very well taken care of because I was fat. <laughs> I was really fat. <laughs> and I was happy and a pretty easy baby. And so, like, the charts say that I would have an easy transition and a good life, and I was very healthy. So I had a bond with my biological mom, I assume, from being in the womb and then being with her for the first month and being breastfed. And this was all from the charts. Were there photos? There's one photo. I'm fat and I look kind of numbed out, like uh, a little bit shocked. Like, what's happening? Are you capturing my spirit with the photo machine? <laughs> yeah, I was six months old. Wow. Or it was earlier than that because I was six months old when I was adopted. Yeah. So there's a photo that my adoptive parents in Michigan got of Mm -hmm. me when I was in Korea and they were in Michigan. Mm -hmm. I have it on my desktop as a reminder for my book. I keep looking at it. This is me. I am that little baby who went through that experience because it's very hard for me to connect to it. So I have this, I was doing some research on incomplete grief. Yes. So I was separated from my biological mom at about one month old. Okay. And then I was in a foster home for about five months Mm -hmm. and was very bonded with that family also. Okay. And then I was adopted and flown overseas to Michigan. And so I had two major interruptions in my attachment. Right. That I cannot remember. It's all Mm pre-language. I have no sense of what that was like. And so it's always been this intellectual idea of loss Mm -hmm. that I haven't really connected to until... The last couple of years, I came across in some of my research this concept of incomplete grief and its pre-language trauma of loss and separation. There's interesting research there. I want to hear about it. People have the physical reactions and the physical responses of trauma, but they can't understand it intellectually. And so people who have traumas from childhood go through life with anger problems or some kind of expressions of PTSD symptoms Mm. and they're not diagnosed or they're not connected easily to the traumatic experience because the individual can't remember them. Right. Thinking about that sort of explains some of my history in terms of relationships, this terror that I have of loss. Yes. And so I'm always afraid of something is going to go wrong and somebody's going to die or somebody's going to leave. And it's mostly death. 
even though I have not ever experienced really a traumatic death in my community. Both my parents are alive. My grandparents passed away. And although that's awful and sad, I hadn't lived in Michigan and wasn't close with them when they died. So it wasn't these people that I was seeing, you know, once a month. Right. Well, you say your parents are still alive. What is your relationship with your parents like? It's really difficult, but I think it always has been difficult. And I didn't know that. On top of this incomplete grief, I grew up in a very Midwestern, white, traditional Christian household Mm -hmm. where you're just expected to act a certain way, believe certain things, and not connect to things of the body. One, because that's sort of, you know, it's kind of just general old school, the old school way of being, but also add on top the religiosity, there's this disconnect from the body which I think translates to being disconnected from your actual experience, your present experience. Right. Also, my mom has had a pretty traumatic life herself, didn't really have parents to help guide her through Mm. any of that. So her response to anything hard my whole childhood was just distraction. Don't think about it. Here, look at this shiny thing over here. Here, eat this piece of chocolate or, Mm. or do this. And let's just not think about it. I mean, that was the language that she used. Something was sad. And she just like, oh, just don't think about it. Very explicit, direct diversion from confronting anything hard. I think much of our culture is that way. Yeah. Not just your mom. Yeah. So there's the standard. This is just how we are. Mm -hmm. And then in my family, it was exacerbated by my mom's own trauma. Mm -hmm. And then this religiosity, which is not just... Don't be in your body and experience this present reality, but Mm -hmm. also like shit may be hard right now, but you're going to go to heaven and it'll be nice. So just don't (laughs) think about it or whatever. Just be a good person and it'll all work itself out later in the future. Yeah. We're going to end up in heaven where we don't have our bodies. So don't be so consumed with the physical. I think they were so terrified of any kind of sexuality. Mm. Okay. That anything with the body had the potential for being sexual. Mm-hmm. And that's always dangerous in their realm. That's where the devil lives. You know, there's temptation and desire. The devil lives and, in sexual activity or in the body? Or I both? Think both. <laughs> I mean, the devil is the things of the world. Gluttony and wanting too much food and alcohol mm-hmm. and the things of the world. The material. The materiality. Yes, gotcha. You're just discouraged to be in the body because of sexuality. The body, when I was growing up, was gross. Yeah. Like, and there was so much shame around poop (laughs) and farts and burps. I mean, some of that is just manners. Right. But it was also this other level of shame around it. You know, with my kids, we're potty talk central. Yeah. But we're also like... Okay, you have to have manners, and this is what it means to be able to speak about those things in the public sphere without offending people, because some people might think this, and it's inappropriate for these reasons. But ha-ha, fart joke. So when you were growing up, were there repercussions? Like if you told a fart joke, for example? Oh, I would have never told a fart joke. Okay, so you understood the lay of the land, Mm -hmm. and you weren't going to cross that line. No, 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 no. Because then it's just shame and stern looks and... We don't do that in this family. (laughs) But you're a really outspoken woman. At what point did the tide turn for you? I mean, I've read some of your pieces. I don't know if dysphoria is the right word. You didn't want a doll that had the same color hair that you did. 
No, I did not want to be Asian. So growing up looking so different than my family, looking so different from my community was was humiliation. And so there was this level of shame in the body that didn't come from my parents, mm. that didn't come from my mom. I have a very weird, very disjointed relationship with my family. There's lots of conflict. So you just said, like, I'm a pretty outspoken woman. I got that from my mother, too. So I have this very conservative, evangelical, traditional white mother, not just skin color, but as in whiteness as a culture, Mm -hmm. all of these ideas around how you have to be. She also told me things like, don't you ever let a man tell you what to do. Don't ever let boys tell you you can't play in that game. And I was really physical when I was growing up. Like I loved playing sports. Uh I mean, I'm short and stocky and just kind of muscular. And my body just works in that kind of grapply kind of way. I loved wrestling. I loved playing football. I loved tackling kids in the yard. She always encouraged that. So there's this conflict at the same time, don't be in your body. But like she always encouraged me to be physical in a way that was really tied to gender. Don't let boys not let you play this game. Don't let a boy dominate you like that. Just because you're a girl doesn't mean he can win in wrestling. Go back out there. I remember once crying coming in because Steve Tarbett, who was one of my best friends at the time, like kicked my ass. I remember him sitting on my chest, grabbing my bangs and hitting my head into the lawn. Oh my God. I mean, we were rough kids. And I went in and I was crying and I wanted my mom to fix it. And she was like, get back out there <laughs> and you show him who's boss. I clearly remember being a young girl, maybe eight or nine years old. I think a boy, did he hit me? I got punched or something. And I ran inside And I, you know, was crying to my mom. You'd expect her to be like, oh, sweetie, come here. You want a hug? You want some ice? You know what she said to me? Did you hit him back? (laughs) (laughs) Whoa. From her perspective, I think it was that kind of pull yourself up by the bootstrap immigrant mentality. And I don't know Mm -hmm. if maybe your mom... From her own experiences of trauma, she was like, all right, yeah, this has been my life. This is not going to happen for my daughters. Thank you for listening in to this episode of Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness. We appreciate you following the work we do and would love it if you'd share us with your friends and family. Your recommendation helps us reach more ears and build upon the work we're doing. So there's this conflict there. So I have this amazing mother, my oldest daughter. She's named after my mom. I was very close with her in many, many ways. She mentored me. She's a great mother. She's a baby whisperer. She's wonderful with little kids. But there's also this level of disconnection where we don't have the depth and the intimacy around things that are really important to me, and particularly around race. Getting back to the notion of adoption and grief and those those intersections, I, as an adopted person, and this is kind of a trend that many adopted people feel, is this need to be thankful that we were saved. (laughs) Yeah. And so growing up in very evangelical Christian fundamentalist household, my family was extremely anti-abortion. I was always the miracle who wasn't aborted in Korea. We'd go to these church groups and people, the first thing they would say to me was, 
aren't you so glad you weren't an abortion? Oh you God. could have been an abortion. Oh. I mean, over and over and over, oh. that was the loop from these people. You know, you hear that as a child and you just start developing this sense of, I could have been an abortion. Thank God I was saved. And so it creates this weird sort of white savior colonialist mentality. These white Christians came in and swooped me up from abject poverty where who knows what would have happened to me. And I have this wonderful life now and I just have to be thankful because everything could have been so bad. I have to be thankful for everything. And it's this legacy that's carried on throughout my life. I always feel like I have to be thankful for everything, even when I'm experiencing something that's really shitty. Yeah, I mean, it's always nice, of course, to be like, okay, let's look on the bright side. Like, that's kind of a generally healthy way (laughs) to be in the world, to kind of try to focus on the good things. For me, when I do that, it's not just a reframing of the experience. It's like a compulsive habit to feel almost guilty for the things that I have. And so then when something is going wrong, there's this feeling of, but I shouldn't feel bad because people have it so much worse than me or it could be so much worse. So I kind of deny myself Mm. the experience of what I'm going through. Interesting. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. And, you know, I'm so keyed into this mindset of gratitude being so helpful in reframing a negative situation. But I've never heard it from the flip side where gratitude is sort of imposed on you as an expectation. That denies you your actual experience. Yeah, exactly. That's really heavy and unfair to you. I never, as a child, had these moments where I felt like I missed my biological family or my birth mother. After some research, I know many adoptive people only think of their birth mother. The birth father is secondary. The biological family is, you know, it's it's down the road. But when I was growing up, I did have a close relationship with my mom, coupled with this intense feeling of having to feel grateful. I never actually grieved any loss of a biological family mm-hmm. or a biological homeland which is another, I'm learning another really significant form of loss. Yeah. Now, I'm learning that there's probably something that I should grieve, and I don't really know how to do it. Right. And it pops up in weird ways, since my natural inclination is to be really heady. Mm -hmm. It's hard for me to actually feel that grief. I can understand it, and I read all the time. I'm trying to theorize things. But when I look at this picture of this little baby that was me when I was, however old I was in that picture, it's hard for me to feel that, oh, that's me. It's hard for me to connect. I mean, you say that you've got this in a cerebral way, but you also just explained this disassociation with yourself and your body. I had a therapist once who helped me visualize, and she was like, I can even sense this in you, that it's like I have this big rectangle block around my head, mm-hmm. and that's the space in which I operate. Anything below that, it's just numb. It's like there's nothing there. Like I'm a severed head just floating around experiencing the world as ideas. Part of our work was physical work. Okay, feel your feet on the floor and try to make those connections. Just to get get real, I've 
I've had an eating disorder pretty much from as long as I can remember. I remember exercising a lot when I was like 10 and being obsessed with exercising. There's all sorts of things wrapped into that. But I started making myself throw up when I was 15 years old. And although I am not bulimic and I don't have problems with my actions around eating, I mean, I guess I still do. I don't make myself throw up anymore, but I still have a bulimic's mindset. I think of it like alcoholism. They say, once you're an alcoholic, you're always an alcoholic and you're always thinking about that. So I obsess with food and I was a binger and a purger. Yeah. And I still tend to binge. And this is just an intellectual idea too. I can't quite connect to it, but this idea, there's an idea around bulimia and especially binging as the physical suppression of feelings in your body that you start feeling something and you just have to shut them down and satisfy this bodily need that you don't know how to handle. And so you just do it through food and that's a way to numb out. Yeah. That's just an interesting idea to explore in terms of what is my relationship with my body in terms of what is my relationship with actual feeling. (laughs) Yeah. And how does that manifest in food? There's all this overlay, you know, around body image and messaging and beauty mythology. But my newest thinking is that the core of all of this stuff is incomplete grief from a traumatic separation when I was a baby. I was feeling, you know, babies are just feeling creatures. That's all they do. They feel the world. They're sensory beings. When you're traumatized such a young age, you're expressing that and experiencing that so fully in the body. Mm -hmm. And when you can't be comforted in your body and you're lost and you cannot be satisfied, I think that produces some kind of disjointed thing between the head and the body. You just have to separate. Sure. You separate from your physical experience because that's where pain is located. Right. You dissociate into the headspace because you have more control. It doesn't hurt as much. How did you comfort yourself as a young child? Or how did you seek comfort? Growing up in the family culture and the societal culture, suburban Detroit, Michigan, you're just not supposed to feel things. There's this working classness too. Don't feel your feelings. You just got to buck up and work your way through. And it's all going to be fine if you just work hard enough. You just got to work harder. I'm adding to that picture, you know, Detroit, Michigan, and bitter cold winter. and Lots of jaded people who've had hard lives. Grew up in a pretty working class community. But you you ought to be grateful. Yeah, I have to be grateful because there was always food on the table. Mm-hmm. Never went hungry. Yeah, I had friends. I had clothes. I went to a decent school. I always have to be grateful. How dare you not be grateful? Mm. I do think that's pretty pervasive in our culture when we look at marginalized populations, individuals, people of color. There is this like, well, they ought to be grateful. They ought to be grateful. They got into that school, right? Kind of it just denies people's real experiences yeah. for this sunny narrative that makes other people feel better. A lot of people who are grieving and struggling have to kind of comfort other people right. and make them comfortable. 
people of color all the time. We have got to make everybody else comfortable. Don't want you to feel bad or don't want to hurt your feelings or don't want you to feel like a racist or, you know, all the oh. things we have to do to accommodate other people, mm-hmm. which is really in turn denying our actual experiences of being oppressed. Your input matters. If you have thoughts on this episode, check out the show notes to find out how to contact us. We'd love your feedback, suggestions, or just a thumbs up. You've experienced, and you are experiencing, some different kinds of grief. The incomplete grief of being adopted but also as a woman of color living in a society that is struggling with its place in history. Yeah, when you say that, I just think there's so much denial. It's not that anybody intentionally denying me my grief around my biological family and homeland. That's just such a strange word to me. But there's this denial of my experience as a person of color. So growing up, in a predominantly white working class community with white parents. I was denied the experience of being a person of color because nobody could understand it. And there's this all lives matter, color blindness mentality. Mm -hmm. It's very painful for people of color. Yeah, It's hard for some white people to understand what that means. They'll say things like, well, you're the racist if you want me to see your race. Well, it's not really about that. My race is important. It's part of who I am. I don't want it to be the predominant thing that you identify me with. I'm also all these other things that you can engage with. I'm a mother. I'm a writer. I'm a lifelong learner. You know, I love love (laughs) books. I was an educator. I'm really tired like the rest of us. We can connect on all of these other things. Anything about me that might be more prevalent at any time than race. I don't want that to be the primary identifier all the time. Right. But it is part of my identity. It's extremely important to me. Yeah. And so growing up where it's like, oh, your race doesn't matter. We're not going to talk about that. Or kids would make fun of me. And now as an adult, I've talked with my mom about it. She's like, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to help you. It's actually very sad. Yeah. She says things like, the racism that I've experienced around being a mother with a child of color came from white people. You know, I grew up in the Detroit area, so it's very black, white, and Middle Eastern. Not a lot of Asian people. Lots of racism around being Asian because that's so different. But at least with black people and Arab people, they understand the experience of oppression and racism. So if they say something problematic, my mom can say, hey... (laughs) let me talk to you about this. And they're like, oh, crap, sorry. Yeah, that was not cool. So they get it. Yeah. Right? So if you call out a person of another race, often they understand because they've experienced their version of that. Yeah. In many situations, you call out a racist behavior or action to a white person. And since they haven't experienced that, they don't think it exists. Right. And so they're like, well, you're wrong. That's it. <laughs> you're you- wrong. You're wrong. That's not racist. Actually, it is. Since they haven't experienced it, they don't believe it exists. Which is such a failure of imagination. Have you found yourself having to have this conversation with 
friends, people you know, people that you're close to? Most of the people I'm close to get it enough for me to be really comfortable. And that feels uncomfortable to me because I think, wow, I live in such a bubble. I'm surrounded by people who, if they don't quite get it, they don't have lots and lots of experience with understanding the dynamics of racism and how it operates on an individual level, how it operates on a cultural level, how it operates on an institutional level. If they don't get the nuances of that, at least they want to know and they're willing to engage in that kind of conversation. So that's comfortable to me. That's easy. Yeah. You know, if somebody is willing to have a conversation with you about something and be honest, I don't know what else you can ask for. Not everybody has to be an expert. I mean, I know quite a bit. There are plenty of people in the world that know a lot more than me. And I hope that they would see, if I was talking with somebody who was much more informed on these issues, that they would be open to my willingness to engage in the conversation. So that's the community that I'm in. People are educators themselves and they inform me about things. And I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. That's a really great way to think about it. You're writing a book. It's really exciting. I've wanted to do this for decades. What is it that you want to convey in this book? What's There's it about? So many. <laughs> so this morning, one of my my tasks was to write my elevator pitch. It's hard. It's a really hard thing to explain because the book has got so many different themes. There are so many different things going on. I've got four different characters. Each chapter is from a different point of view. So I'm writing four separate storylines, four separate little books that all have to support the main storyline. But largely it's about modern identities that don't fit traditional ones. So the main character is a Korean-American adoptees, transracial, transnational adoption. She's got her own journey of kind of trying to figure out who she is. So the novel starts with an accident. She's been in a, in a really bad bike car accident mm. that's near fatal, puts her in a coma. She wakes up and has to reconfigure her whole life. And she's got this traumatic brain injury. So this physical shakeup forces her to start confronting a lot of identity issues because... She's got issues with her adoptive family and they're not there for her. So she has to think about what family do I have in the world? And so she's redefining her family, but she's created a blended family herself. She's remarried and she's bringing a biological mixed race child into a new relationship with a white man who has a biological mixed race child. And so these mixed race kids are really, really different from each other and they're different from their friend group. So they have to figure out how do they straddle all of these multiple identities being not fully a person of color, not fully white, not being in a blended family. So all these people are grappling with identity issues around race and around family. Mm. So I didn't realize this is a fiction book. Yeah, it's fiction. Mm, I love fiction. I was an English major. <laughs> my tribe. I find myself just devouring nonfiction lately, which is odd because it seems like a good time for some escapism, some serious fiction. I love Even fiction, but I find myself reading so much nonfiction. So the body keeps the score. Yeah. I need to go back to mm -hmm. that. And I'm reading a lot about Korean history. And I notice when I'm struggling the most with my writing is when I'm not reading fiction. Interesting. Yeah. And it's very easy for me to get away from fiction because it's so pleasurable. It feels like 
cheating. Like I'm supposed to be working on this novel and it's so much work and I have my day planned out. It's a serious job. And so I'm studying and I'm writing and I'm doing things that are really, really difficult. When I'm reading nonfiction, I'm taking notes and I'm annotating and all the things that make it feel like work. And then when I'm reading a book, it feels like I'm cheating. So you're asking, how can I support the awesome work that's happening on the Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness podcast? Become a backer on Patreon. Your support allows us to deliver conversations that help to dissolve the stigma and evolve our culture around grief. You'll find a link to contribute via Patreon in the show notes. And if you have something valuable to offer our listeners, let's talk. We'd love to invite you to sponsor the show. You have children of your own. I know for myself, having lost my mom when I was really young, being a mom is this unfamiliar territory in a way. I often catch myself, what would my mom do in this situation? That instruction manual didn't come in my packet. Yeah. <laughs> or some of the pages in that instruction manual. Yeah, you don't even have, have that fall. thing to push off against. <laughs> A lot of people said, I had this crappy experience with my mom or with my parents. So you will do the opposite of what they did. You are countering part of the way you were raised. In your parenting, you're sort of rebelling against some of the things that were instrumental in your mom used in rearing you. I have a lot to pick and choose from. Yeah. I have a lot of good things. My mom talked with me. Part of her trauma was that she was completely rejected by her family. Mm. She had three brothers and they wanted boys. And so when she was four, they gave her to her grandparents because they didn't want her. Mm. She lived just a couple blocks away from her brothers and her parents. And so they would ride their bikes by and she was just not part of that family. And there's all sorts of other trauma in there. She ended up going into the convent. She was always pretty religious. And so she devoted her life to religion and to God. She was a Catholic nun from 17 to 24. Wow. Left the convent because it was hardcore and super strict. And she was like, oh my God, I, I don't want the rest of my life to be like this. So she left at 24. And nuns could either be teachers or nurses, really, is occupation. So she went into teaching. She's always been great with children because she's had this really crappy childhood. You know, people often have one reaction or the other. They either replicate their trauma or make other choices to be intentionally not what they went through themselves. Right. So she's always been great with kids. And then she spent her, her career teaching in Catholic schools in Detroit. So she talked with me a lot about child rearing, lots of explicit conversations around that. And then when my sister and I were old enough to leave the house, she quit teaching and went into foster care. She was a foster parent for oh, wow. 17 years or something oh, like that. Man. And that was after I was out of the house, but had lots of conversations with her around parenting because she had kids in crisis, lots of trauma right. and lots of behavioral issues, lots of things. I got to see her parenting in action and be around kids. I was just around kids a lot. I yeah. used to babysit a lot. So younger kids, I got a lot of modeling. And then as I got older, there's this absence and lack of depth in that relationship. And then that's when all this stuff about don't be in your body, your body's gross, and do this, and we can't talk about that. We never talked about sex. We didn't talk about boys. We didn't talk about my friends. They had no idea what was going on in my personal life. 
And so I have this model from when I was little and then watching her take care of young kids, but how to be with little kids. I'm super comfortable with little kids. It's kind of like one of my jams. <laughs> Bring me your babies. We have play dates all the time. People come over and they're like, there are so many kids in your house. <laughs> What's happening? I love it. It's easy. Kids listen to me. I've got very clear boundaries. It's built into me now from so much experience just to know how to manage them. Older kids. I don't have a model for how to be. So you're winging it like so me. I'm winging it. Totally winging it. And how's it going? I think it's going pretty well because when you start them off pretty good, yeah, then you can kind of trust them. They just... So my daughter's 14. And she's amazing. She's gone through all sorts of teenager things that are hard, keep me up at night a little bit, but I also really trust her. And we've built this relationship where we're really open and she tells me a lot of things. And so I feel like as long as we're communicating and she's telling me things... And I'm telling her things, you know, I'm just transparent. I don't know what to do. I don't have an answer for this. Here's what I'm thinking. Give me some time to think about it so I can make a decision because I've never parented a 14-year-old before. So here are the things I'm considering right now, and I will get back to you with a definitive answer. Yeah, I don't know. I'm confused about this. I'm uncomfortable. Here's probably why. Without being gross and like, here's too many, yeah, yeah. too much information, and I'm not respecting boundaries. She's still a child. I'm still a parent. Every parent wants a better life for their kids than they had, right? Don't we all? I hope so. <laughs> that should be the universal. Yeah. If there's one or two wishes or themes that you have for your kids, what would those be? So this is on my mind a lot. My biological children are not attached to any kind of sustainable family legacy. My family in Michigan... They're wonderful people, but because of their own traumas, they're just cut off from history and their stories about who their grandparents and great-grandparents, there's no legacy there. Mm. And I have no biological legacy. I can't give them that. And so my kids, my biological children are biracial and they have this whole Korean side. My daughter's really interested in it and she can't access it and I can't give it to her. That feels like such a loss. Mm. Many cultures throughout the world have a homeland that's located in the actual home where generations and generations of people have lived. In Korea, there's a family home and all the ancestors are buried very close, like on the hill over there. You can see it out the window and you can go to it. And there are ancestor rituals where you go and honor them multiple times a year. There's a legacy a family and place. There's a heritage and there are stories. You know where you come from. My people are like this and we are hardworking and honest and this and that when they're positive. You can also come from a legacy of dysfunction. Mm -hmm. You also have that. There's this story. There's something, a foundation that you can pick and choose from it. Yeah, You can say, this is where I'm from and yeah, that's who I am or this is where I'm from and I made other choices. But you're still connected to this Thing that's way bigger than you. Yeah. And it gives you purpose and direction because there's just something there. Yeah. Something to stand on. Your question was, what's the thing I want to give my children? Yeah. It's this thing that I can't give them. Mm. I mean, there are all sorts of other things I want them to be self-possessed young women who can advocate for themselves and who can take risks and who aren't afraid and who know who they are and are curious 
have a lot of laughter in their lives and good friendships and health and can create great boundaries for themselves with unhealthy people who they might also love but might not be healthy be able to maintain all sorts of different relationships with people because they know how to interact in healthy ways. Want all sorts of things for them. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual in Portland, Oregon. This episode was produced and edited by Jack Saturn and me, Sarah Shaul. The music was by Samantha Jensen. Visit us online at griefgratitudegreatness.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at griefgratitudegreat. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a review. Your feedback helps our show and helps us find new listeners. If you have a story of your own that you'd like to share or topics you'd like to hear more about, we'd love to hear from you. Call or text our show at 503-454-6646 or send us a message via the contact link at griefgratitudegreatness.com. Be sure to let your friends know about us and join us next time. We look forward to sharing more conversations with you.